It's a pleasure to be back at Spirit Rock. I've been away for a bit. Someone told me that Sylvia gave the Dharma talk last Monday night on enlightenment, so I don't know if there's much more to say after that. (laughs) But I've returned in part from the peacemaking conference with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and a cast of thousands in San Francisco. How many of you were at that conference, just to know? So probably a couple of dozen of us. Um, And from a retreat prior to it with uh, Maladoma Somme, this West African medicine man, and Michael Mead and Luis Rodriguez, who's a Latino poet, um, working with about 30 youth from Watts and Oakland and Chicago who'd been in gangs, young men, and who were now being mentored in ways to take that energy and do something more positive with it in the world. So we'd had a kind of an initiation camp for some days out in the woods of storytelling and drumming and rites of passage and then went down to the meeting with the Dalai Lama, which included uh, about 200 youth from around the state primarily. And part of the adventure in going to see the conference for these young men was to go see the Dalai Lama, who is a king. He's one of the last legitimate kings in the world. Uh, Even if he's in exile, he's one of the uh, uh, last kings that you get to see. Um, And in particular, he's a king who has a reputation for an enormous nobility of spirit. And so they were very interested, what does a king look like and speak like? How does the king act? Will the king give us blessings? Um, And we talked about how, whether it was the Dalai Lama or the other Nobel laureates who were there at that conference, that they could see in these beings the possibility of awakening, the possibility of living a life, even in the midst of great hardship, that had wisdom and compassion and nobility at its core. Um, And for these youth who came, they were looking for a vision, really. Said, all right, we've tried all this other stuff on the streets, and like one of the young men in this group said, most of the guys who were in my gang um, have died. Um, I'm one of the few that are left, and um, is there some other way? So they were really looking to see. And at first, it was actually a little bit difficult. Um, and it was a beautiful conference and gathering. In some way, it was kind of the Dharma glitterati, you know. <laughs> it was, you know. And everybody had five minutes. There's the Dalai Lama with this panel of, you know, famous and... Um, Uh, well-known teachers on the stage, and Stephen Levine gets five minutes to say something, and Alice Walker gets five minutes to say something, and you go, do you have anything more to say? But then, okay, it's someone else's turn. And uh, one of the most extraordinary speakers for me was uh, Jose Ramos Horta, who received the Nobel Prize uh, from East Timor um, for the uh, peace work he's done for 25 or more years there. Um, that's an island taken over in part by the Indonesian army almost 20 or 25 years ago, and a third of the population was killed or thrown in prison. And he had such um, strong and clear uh, energy to communicate to the youth and to everyone there about justice and a kind of faith He said, you know, the best leaders on the earth right now, he'd recently been to see Nelson Mandela and Václav Havel in Czechoslovakia. He said, the best leaders on the earth have all spent time in prison. And what does that say when the most noble being in Africa that we all recognize, Nelson Mandela, spent 27 years of his life in prison? You know, or Václav Havel as a poet and a writer, as the, really the spokesperson for peace in Eastern Europe and Czechoslovakia, um, lived many years in prison. And uh, Ramos Horta had also been in prison. But what he communicated was a, an unshakable faith that if one sticks to the vision of justice for this world and of nonviolence, that there was a way, even if it took those years in prison, 
there was a way to translate it into the life of the beings around you. There's a famous story of a Hindu master um, who was captured in the Mughal invasions of India some hundreds of years ago. Um, And the enemy emperor had this guru um, brought before him in the court and in chains. And there was this master brought in front of him and said, well, we've burned the Hindu temples, you know, we're taking over this land and, um, you know, let's see what your Hindu faith has to offer you now, kind of mocking him. And the guru looked back at the emperor and nodded and he said, I can write down a magic formula which will shield me from all harm. Hmm, said the emperor and handed him a piece of paper, you know, and a quill pen, a writing implement. Bring that to him. And so he wrote this few words and folded the paper and kept it in his hand. And then the invading emperor said, now cut off his head. And a great, you know, swordsman came up, one of the guards, with a sharp sword and cut off the guru's head. It rolled across the floor. He fell lifeless to the ground. And then uh, the emperor said, bring me that piece of paper. So they pried it out of his hand and opened it and read it. And it said, you can have my head, but you cannot have my faith. That was his last words. And there's some way that you got the sense listening to these beings like Jose Ramos Horta, that no matter what happens, we set our hearts in a direction of justice and respect, and that itself has the effect on the rest of humanity, no matter what. But the young people that I work with mostly during the conference, doing various things, teaching meditation, but primarily with this youth group, they were also activists. So they sat there through the you know, the plenary sessions for a while, then they said, you know, this is kind of like school, which was not high in their esteem. You know, it's one thing to talk about this, but let's do something. Because here we are, 2,000 of us, and it costs $300 to get in the door for these three days. And right outside the Civic Center, right in front of it, in the park just in front, is a park filled with shopping carts and homeless people. So the first night, Monday night, that the Dalai Lama was giving another of his lectures, They said, let's not go to that. And they took the food that we had and they made as many plates of it as they could and they carried it out to the park and fed the people in the park and then they brought their drums and prayers and set up an altar and did songs and teachings and they said, if we can't bring them in, then let's go out to them. It was really beautiful to see. They were ready to pick at the conference and we need to let more homeless people in, more, you know, I mean, these are activists. And there was a part of me that was saying, yeah, right, you know, go ahead. (laughs) But then in mentoring them, we talked about leadership and that there were several different models. One was to go along passively. Another was to kind of be the revolutionary, go outside with your signs and picket. But maybe there's some middle way where you could wait for an opening and have your voice heard. And they got intrigued in that, you know. Is there a place for leadership in which you hang in there at the edge and wait for your place? Because they didn't feel that the youth were listened to so well. So by the time the end of the conference came, they did stay and they did speak some. There was a great big procession of the youth who surrounded the Dalai Lama with beautiful banners and a song as they went up. And then a couple of the more eloquent of them began to speak. And each time a youth would speak in the conference, all the youth would rush to the front of the stage and kind of stand there in front as kind of solidarity. And this young woman who spoke talked about, again, the need for action more than words. And that the youth were planning their own conference in a year from now in that same place um, to show that they could do something in the world, not just the elders that were there. And the Dalai Lama interrupted them. And he said, yes, uh, I appreciate this. And so I would like the honor of being the first patron of your conference. And so I would offer from the Tibetan treasury $5,000 as a gift to you to begin to start uh, the, the development of this youth conference. And there was such a nobility in that gesture you know, and everyone was cheering and so forth. You go to see the king for blessings. That's really the function 
of a wise king. And then the king said, yes, not only will I bless you, but let me support you as best as I can. So it was a very beautiful ending. Um, And the spirit of the conference and the teachings as we sit here as well really asks of us a fundamental question. What does it mean to live our life from this place of wisdom, from the place of awakening that's called our true nature or our Buddha nature? So let us speak further about it this evening. My teacher Ajahn Chah talked about meditation, the practice we do here of sitting with awareness and compassion, a wakeful presence, as returning us to that place of knowing in ourselves. By sitting quiet even for a moment, we return to that which he called the one who knows inside, this place of knowing, our natural wisdom. The line from Rumi is, pay regular visits to yourself. That's really what meditation is about, is that kind of regular visit. Because what we're looking for to live a wise life is nearer than near. It is just here. Now one way to understand this wisdom, this inherent knowing, that nobility of spirit that one could see at the conference exemplified in some of these leaders, is to look not at the one who knows, but at the one who forgets. Forgetting is wondrous, forgetfulness and sleep. It's quite amazing that on this earth, there's this mysterious thing that happens. Most mammals, a lot of reptiles, in fact, most living creatures go to sleep a fair amount of the time. You know, and sometimes it's all winter, like the bears that hibernate. Or sometimes it's just six or eight or nine or however many hours at night. I mean, isn't it bizarre? Here we have our day. We go about thinking that everything is real. And then every day we go and we lie down and we close our eyes and it completely disappears. And we get a whole new reality, this dream reality that comes with stories. And we fly and we fight demons and we go through all these things. And then the other one comes back and everybody does it. Why is it that we lie down, go unconscious, and have this other reality? Isn't that bizarre? I mean, think about it on this earth. So first of all, there's this mystery of sleep. That we sleep at all is amazing. We take it for granted. And then there is the second sleep, which you may have noticed, which is called the waking spell that we're under a fair amount of the time. It is the sleep of automatic living. When you drive someplace, you know, and there you get in the city and you park your car, and then you kind of wake up and think, now, where was I that whole time? You kind of remember when you're there, but automatic pilot took you to that place and you were gone, you know? Or in parenting, where you're just going along being a parent, so to speak, and you notice, whoops, that your mother or father's voice came out of your mouth and you didn't even think about it, and there it was, you know. In my case, it's Joyce and Ted. Say, wow, how did you get in the room, you know? But there she was. Or the sleep of the kind of separateness that we live in, where we feel that we're separate from others. We live in this separate body that's called the desire body or the small sense of self. And in that, when we believe we're separate, we lose the reality of knowing that we're part of a larger cycle of things. I remember, you know, leading a retreat down in Yucca Valley a few years ago. And as part of the meditation teachings, we talk about Knowing the fact of death is one of the realities of meditation, to know that things change. We talk about it, it's part of spiritual teachings everywhere. Well, during this retreat, someone died, right? So we were on this retreat and this person had a a, uh, severe stroke, 
um, brain stem very deep and taken to a hospital and they died. And we've been talking about death, but um, people kind of heard the words, yeah, that's a nice spiritual teaching, and that all of a sudden the person who was next to them or two or three seats over was not there anymore and had died. And that's one of the most miraculous things, it says in the Bhagavad Gita with Krishna and Arjuna having this conversation. What's the most amazing thing in this amazing world, says Arjuna to Lord Krishna. To, and Krishna says, the most amazing thing to see of all the wonders is that people can see others all around them dying and still think, it won't happen to me. So this is the waking sleep. You understand it, automatic pilot, forgetting. And it has its benefits. Letting go, rest, a kind of renewal, a forgiving and forgetting. Sleep is wonderful. I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, it's called the poor man's nirvana. You know? So it has its place. Especially when the pain of life is so great, the sorrows. Emily Dickinson wrote, There is a pain so utter... It swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step across as within a swoon. And sometimes we just need to rest. We need to forget. It lets us be fresh, that forgetting to start again. But so easily it goes into denial, doesn't it? Sigmund Freud wrote, Life as we find it is too hard for us, entails too much pain, too many disappointments, impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliative remedies. There are perhaps three of these means, powerful diversions of interest, which lead us to care less about our miseries, substitute gratifications, which lessen it, and intoxicating substances, which make us insensitive to it. Something of this kind is indispensable. Now, I don't know that that's so, in fact. But if we look around, we can see that there is a great deal of turning away, of denial, a lot of doublespeak in the society. You know, it's like the lottery. Come and, you know, get yourself rich by these lottery tickets, as it would said, you have as much chance to win the lottery as them sending it to you by accident. Right? <laughs> or these actual statements found on an insurance form. Car drivers attempted to summarize the details of their accident. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Or... I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. (laughs) Or a pedestrian hit me and went under my car. (laughs) The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. The telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front end of my car. So forgetfulness is an amazing thing in some way, isn't it? Um, Our separate universe is constructed of this amazing quality of forgetfulness. Emerson spoke of children trailing clouds of glory in the Hindu teachings of the child in the womb who sings, Oh, let me remember who I am. And then the first cry after birth, 
Dear Lord, I've begun to forget already. Alan Watts described it as the taboo against knowing who you really are, the title of one of his books. And there's a certain way in which even religion collaborates in the ruse. Joseph Campbell called most popular religion an inoculation against the true mystical. You go and you have a little bit of ceremony and then you don't have to worry about it too much. Remember the story of the old black man who was very pious and went to church every day, but then somehow his neighborhood was torn down and he had to move to another area, lived in another house. And in this other place, mostly a white neighborhood decided to go and start visiting the church down the street, this great big church. So he went in every week, you know, and one day he went up to the minister. He said, well, I've been coming to the church. I decide maybe I should join. Had this conversation, but he got a sense from the minister that maybe he wasn't really completely welcome in that church. So finally he said, well, maybe I should think about it a little further. Minister said, you should. He said, yeah, I think I'll pray on it. So he left, and a couple weeks later, he ran into the minister on the street. And the minister said, yeah, how you doing? Have you been uh, praying? The man said, I sure have. He said, I was talking to God about it. <clears throat> minister kind of looked up. It's like something's interesting happening. He said, yeah, what'd you find out? Your prayers. He said, well, I've been talking to God about joining the church. God said back to me, he said, it's no use. He said, uh, I've been trying to get in that same church myself for 25 years. They won't have me either. So you understand that even spirituality can be used as a way not to really see this life in front of us. When we forget who we are, we get too busy doing our lives to awaken, too busy being ourselves and getting somewhere and doing it, and then we don't have time to love well, to care for those around us, for the earth, until all of a sudden we get one of those telephone calls from the doctor's office. Oh, we were checking your mammogram, or, you know, the heart pains that have come, or your parent calls and you find out that they fell and had an accident and broke their hip. You know those kind of calls? And all of a sudden all the priorities of our life shift. And you say, well, what really, really matters? It's like that story of the minister who went into the tavern one day and saw almost all his congregation there drinking, got upset about it, stood up, kind of drew a line on the floor and said, all those who want to go to heaven, step over here. He's going to have a little conversation. Everybody stepped over except one guy. He looked at him and he said, uh, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And the fellow looked back and he said, oh, I thought you were going right now. <laughs> But there's a big cost to sleep-waking or living like in a mechanical way, as Gurdjieff talked about it, because we don't see the hearts of those with whom we speak and drive and interact and move. The cost is the couples who come to see me for therapy and say, oh, we're going to get a divorce and it'll be fine for the children. You know, and it's never fine for the children. Doesn't mean that sometimes it's not the right thing to do, but it's incredibly painful and it leaves a great wreckage and it needs to be honored that that's true. It's the cost of the men, the fathers I know, who weren't there to raise their children or the children who weren't there to be raised by their fathers, you know. And then it goes on to the next generation in the next generation. It's the cost of being, what is it, one, 6% of the world that's using nearly 50% of the resources of the world. And we know it. You know, every time that we travel in that kind of modern style, 
there's something in us that also knows the cost of that. It's the cost of a society that becomes more and more affluent and at the same time, in many cases, is more isolated and more lonely. You know? It's the cost of being the great weapon supplier to the rest of the earth. The five nations who are on the UN Security Council, the US and the the central five nations, um, are the biggest weapons exporters as well. So that we voted against, in the UN we voted against the ban on landmines. They now only cost 50 cents There are millions of them. And when you end a war like in Cambodia, you know what happens then? For 20 years later, people can't walk in the woods and swim in the streams and wash clothes because there are all these landmines. And nobody's fighting anybody anymore. My teacher, Gosananda, when he visited, I said, how can we help you? He said, well, he said, the thing you could do would be to tell the Congress people to not vote for this, to vote against the, um, the dissemination of landmines. And you could send us money because $15 buys an artificial limb. Mm. And we need that. We need uh, tens of thousands of them every year. He said, that's how you could help us. Mm. And it's our country that manufactures them, a couple of others. So in Greek, the word lethe means to sleep. And the opposite of lethe, alethe, is truth. So when we wake up, it's not just waking up, but it's seeing what is true. The cost of not seeing is injustice, lack of connection, lack of care. A pin shall prick thy finger and thou shalt feel it not. Thy tooth shall be extracted and thou shalt be anesthetized, or thou shalt be bitten by a mad dog, injected with serum, and the dog be shot, and neither of you feel any pain. Or thou shalt pass every day a bundle of rags, who cries, give me a quarter, I am homeless, and thou shalt be anesthetized and pass on. Or thou shalt be in the antechamber of the modern hospital, awaiting birth or death, no matter, and peruse the news of the world, the pages and screen before your eyes, famine in Central Africa. Latest fashion bikini leaves no strap marks, dioxin, diet cookbook, neo-Nazi outbreak, film star of the year, assassination of the year, and no one thing shall be worse and none better, and thou shalt ingest them all with the painless, smiling, same feeling of have a nice day. So that's sleeping. It's like that story I tell so often of the woman at Ram Dass's retreat who passed by the homeless person every day, the retreat on service, and realized even though she gave money, she'd never really looked him in the eye. And one day it dawned on her that she was afraid to because if she actually did, she was afraid he'd end up in her living room. We're afraid somehow that the heart can't bear to look, afraid of our own generosity, afraid that they'll all come into our living room. And yet we have to look. Rosa Anaya, who's lived here in Woodacre and San Geronimo Valley for some years, brought up for safekeeping after her father was killed. He was the head of the Human Rights Commission in El Salvador. She was one of two children to speak to the body of the United Nations a couple of years ago at the Human Rights Children's Conference. And she addressed the whole session of the United Nations. Dear sirs, I speak for millions of children who cannot be here with us. Millions of children who suffer and die because of adults, governments and leaders who make war and policy, who would politically or economically enslave others or allow this enslavement to happen. I beg you each to find enough love in your heart 
to stop permitting this. I ask for one minute of silence for those children who suffer. And I offer you a photo of my father, perhaps to you just another man in a pool of blood, just a man who died for his dedication to human rights. But I ask of you too a great sacrifice, not just words, but action, so that children will not have to suffer what I have. This is all the one who forgets, the one who's afraid, who doesn't look. But what about the one who knows, the Buddha within? That quality that comes even in the moment of our sitting, in the moment of stilling ourselves and listening with our body and our hearts. This Buddha within is said to move with like two wings of a bird, two qualities, the qualities of wisdom and the quality of compassion. When we forget wisdom, we forget about death, and life becomes very confusing when we don't remember that it's short. Or we think that things are permanent, or we get lost in the possessions of things. But in a moment of stopping, and bringing an attention and a caring presence, we can sense again that one who knows. It's so simple. And the one who knows in us remembers and recognizes impermanence, that life is short. Stephen Levine's new book is called A Year to Live. It's a whole series of month-by-month practices to do as if you only had a year to live. And when we pay attention and know that our life is short, then priorities become straight. What matters to you if you only have a short time? What do you most care about? And what stops you from doing it? Who would you talk to? What would you do? Why not do it? One old Sufi dervish knocked on the door of the sultan's palace one day as he wandered through the the Middle East. He knocked loudly and he said, may I have a night's lodging in this motel? So this was passed along to the court of the sultan inside who said, a dervish at the door calling my palace a motel? Bring him in here. He was rather offended. You ask for one night's sleep and you insult me. This is my palace. You better explain yourself, sir. So the dervish looked back and he said, Who owned this palace before you? My father, said the sultan. Where is he now? Oh, he died. And who owned it before him? Oh, my grandfather. And before him, my great-grandfather. Where are they now? Oh, They are both dead. The dervish looked back and said, You mean this place where people lodge for a brief while and move on? Did you not say it was a motel? What do you think it is? And the sultan bowed to him. said, Yes, thank you. Think about it. Reflect on it. The one who knows understands this. How would we live? From that place, what matters is so simple, how well we love, how much we care for those around us, for the earth itself. The one who knows sees the truth of pleasure. Pleasure is okay. It is what it is. It doesn't last, and it doesn't bring the deepest happiness of our life. You know, Socrates, who lived a very frugal life, and loved the frugal life, used to go often to the marketplace. So his students came and said, why do you go? They said, oh, I love to go there and discover how many things I am happy without. (laughs) 
the one who knows in us, we have these things, and it's not that there's something wrong with them. They're just things. That's all. What really matters knows the truth of pleasure. It is what it is. And let's go of that as being the goal of life. What is the goal from this place of our heart's knowing? The one who knows, which is the king, like the Dalai Lama, the queen in us, knows that we too cannot run from loss, that we cannot escape sorrow or suffering. It is the first noble truth of the Buddha. Can we bow to that too, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and say, yes, this too is a part of life? Like Lama Yeshe, who when he was taken in the hospital as an extraordinary teacher, he said, after 41 days in the hospital, my mind became like that of an anti-god, my body like the lord of a cemetery, my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. It was so difficult to do my meditation. I had to practice so hard to bring back a stability of heart. Don't think it's so easy. When the Dalai Lama gave the teachings in Los Angeles last week, gave a series of practices, very simple practices of wisdom and compassion, and then at the end, he told the story of Milarepa, the great yogi of Tibet. Milarepa's Dharma successor, disciple Gampopa. They were departing Milarepa to go and spend his last years in the cave in the mountain. Gampopa paid his respects, and Milarepa was walking away. And Gampopa said, Have you given me all the teachings, Master? And the Master said, No, one more thing. And he turned his back to him and bent over and flipped his robe up as if to moon him. Yes, this is a great story. And showed him on his buttocks these two big calluses from the years of sitting in the stone in the cave. He said, that's my teachings. And the Dalai Lama told that story and then broke into tears and wept. And he said, you know, you people in America, you all are asking, what is the quickest way, the fastest way, the best way, the easiest way? He said, please, my friends, there is no quickest way, no best, fastest, easiest way. It is not the way if it's the quickest way. The way is your sincerity, your sincere attention through difficulty and joy and pleasure and pain again and again till you can really live in that place of knowing in the midst of it all. The one who knows rests in that place and says, yes, this moment and this moment I will be true to this place of knowing. The one who knows also can forgive. In sleep, all through the day, going through things, we tend to blame everybody else. You know, it's their fault, them, the government, or our lover, or our spouse, or the economy, or the liberals, or the conservatives, or the Nazis, or Islam, or the Russians, or the fundamentalists, or whoever they are, you know? as if it were their fault. But the one who knows in us just knows that there is freedom and there is suffering. And we're all in it together. And those who create suffering suffer as much as anyone. The prayers in loving kindness are for those beings who are suffering and for those beings who are causing suffering. That's the real prayer. It's like the nuns in the prison in Tibet, in prison for saying their prayers aloud in public, who speak about praying for the enemy. Picture being carried away in the night. Picture torture. You know what to imagine. You are modern. Darkened rooms, hours of questioning, ropes and hunger, endless nights, beatings, electric shock. Your crime, you wanted to recite your prayers. You wanted to live a holy life, to honor your teachers. 
what then? If you survive, if they do let you go, they force you to take off your robes, to grow your hair, force you to marry, to give up your prayers. What can you do? What do you do? You pray for the enemy. May they be well. May they be peaceful. May they find understanding. You pray for the enemy. The one who knows sees that we're really all in it together and how much we need one another. Chinese dissident Mr. Liu Qing, who served 11 years in Weinan No. 2 prison in Shaanxi province. He was forced to sit on a wooden stool eight inches high without moving 10 hours a day. And if he moved or spoke to the other prisoners watching him, he was beaten. And to end his suffering and assure a successful future, he needed only sign a statement without naming anyone, saying that he had made mistakes in his thinking. And for 11 years, Mr. Liu Qing refused to sign this confession. Finally, when he was released, he was asked, on what basis did he refuse to sign this paper? And he said each time that it was put before him and he contemplated the possibility of signing it, he saw before him the faces of his family and friends, the villagers with him, whom he lived, and he knew he could not sign that paper because it was not for him, it was for them. The one who knows recognizes how much we share together in this life. And in the moment we see it, in the moment of suffering, the beautiful thing in watching the Dalai Lama was how much you could see in his response. His caring was to alleviate suffering, to help beings understand that you can be free, and you can, and you can live a life of compassion and not cause suffering one being after another, one statement after another. What a beautiful way to live a life. And that is really our life, our birthright, the Buddha nature within ourselves. So when we sit or walk or walk in the woods or walk by the ocean or meditate in whatever spirit we do, what we're doing is just taking time from the busyness for a moment to come back and breathe and remember this quality of sacred presence, of awareness that says, yes, this moment, what really matters this day again? It's there in each of us. The one who knows sees with the eyes of compassion. Otherwise, it's as it was written, we will know the end of civilization when half the world starves and the other half watches it on TV. You know, and that's how it is in these times. We can see it. So it's given back. Somebody has to do something. Someone has to live in a different way. And the power of even one person to do that is extraordinary. That's what Jose Ramos Horta was talking about. Even one person who really has that faith can change a whole community or society. So Gandhi wrote, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives. I believe that if one person gains spiritual life, the whole of the world gains, and that if one person falls, the whole of the world falls to that extent. What we do when we sit is a very simple thing, and yet it's also a brave political act if you do it wisely, because it's the place and the task of sitting to let ourselves face in us and in the images that we carry of the world, in our connectedness, greed and fear, our own and those around us, and confusion and hatred 
and all of the sleep and denial of life. To see it with a clarity, to say, yes, this is what it is. And to find that great capacity of heart to hold it all, to trust the heart, and to get up from that stillness of sitting as if we could bow to it all and say, I can live from this place of knowing. It was very beautiful at one point watching the Dalai Lama teach because he was giving this lecture talking about some aspect of the power of nonviolence. And then he lost it. He lost his whole train of thought and stopped in the middle, was trying to get it back with his translator. He couldn't figure it out. And then he looked up, he said, hmm. He said, mm, lost my train of thought. He said, I cannot remember. He said, oh, this, this is confusion. <laughs> And it was just such a sweet moment. It was just what it was. It was his meditation in that moment. It's really a brave thing to name what is so and say, this is what it is. And in that moment, there's light again. In that moment, there's this possibility. And that's the invitation of spiritual practice. And it's really the support that comes from meditation, not as a quick way or some you know, fast mick meditation, kind of drive through Spirit Rock, get your thing, you know. Because the things that you care about, every one of them, we carry these. They are in our living room. It's how we use our money and how we treat our children and our lovers and our neighbors and live in this economy, how we live in this world that makes a difference, and it can make a huge difference. You say you can't create anything original, said the Desert Fathers. Don't worry about it. Create a cup from which your brother and sister can drink. Let's sit together. as you sit quietly, let yourself become aware of that which you need to accept as true if you are to live wisely, the things that are true that you've turned away from. Let your heart and mind open from this knowing to say, yes, this is so. Even the difficulties And knowing what is true in yourself, in your life, in the world around you that you may have turned from or closed your heart or your eyes to, 
sense that great wisdom and compassion that is your birthright, your Buddha nature. Sense that capacity to bow to even this and to respond and live with it wisely. Feel in your body and your heart and your being what it is like when you walk through this life as the one who knows, as the Buddha who sees with the eyes of mercy and compassion all of life before you. So we have just a few more minutes before we end. Let me ask you a question, a few people, if you'll speak. We have five minutes. Um, In speaking about forgetting and remembering, does anyone have an experience that happened to them of waking up and realizing they'd forgotten and seeing life in a new way that they've discovered or they might share? What do you know about this? Please. I, I work with hospice, and I've been doing that work for 12 years, so I'm very familiar with death and dying at one level. But I just recently had a birthday and recognized that I was going to die too. Hmm. Mm. Yes. Thank you. It's like I was talking to Stephen Levine a few years ago, who's a dear friend, and I respect his work, he and Andrea so much, and his mother had just died. And I said, Stephen, you know, you've sat with so many people dying of the epidemic of HIV and all these other things. I said, how was it for you to be with your mother? She died. And he said it was really different because it was my mama, it was my mother, it was different. Thank you. Yes. It's just an observation that I've been playing with for some years, which is when you're awake, you know you're awake. Mm. When you're asleep, you don't know you're asleep. Ah. And it's, it's, instead of getting angry when I've drifted off and an hour or a day or a week goes by, it's like this great gift when I wake up. Ah. I, I drift off and I'm doing what I do, and all of a sudden, you know, whoa, where have I been? Well, I'm back. Okay. <laughs> it's just sort of like a present when you wake up. So this is his ob- observation, that when you're awake, you know you're awake. When you're asleep, you don't remember. So then there's those moments when you wake up and you said it's such a gift to have that moment of awakening. Not blaming the sleep, but treasuring the awakening like those two 
the teaching from the Christian Desert Fathers of this young monk who said, what should I do if the monk who's near me, this young brother, starts to fall asleep and snore in the prayers and so forth? Should I pinch him to wake him up? And the abbot said, if one of the brothers should fall asleep near me, I put his head in my lap and hold him that he might rest more comfortably until he awakens. So the idea isn't to judge oneself or another for being asleep, but to bow to it like the Dalai Lama said, oh, confusion. This is, oh, sleep again. Fantastic, huh? Boy, look how really sleepy I was in that one. I just completely checked out. That was quite remarkable in the middle of that. And to appreciate that moment of waking up. Thank you, Elliot. One more, please. It's one of the beautiful things about meditation because people find that they're with their breaths for three or four breaths and then they're off in fantasy for a long time and then they wake up. After you do it for a while, you still get lost in the fantasy, but instead of being there for three or four breaths, you might be there for five or six. Or instead of the fantasy lasting ten minutes, Maybe it only lasts eight minutes or six minutes, and then you wake up. And after a while, you realize that you're here. Instead of being asleep 98% of the time, you're only asleep 96% of the time. You might say, well, this is pretty discouraging. Of course, you know what the Dalai Lama would say, mmm, you know, no quick fix, right? Just keep. But actually, it means that you're here twice as much. It's not, doesn't take that much to double it. And all of a sudden, twice as much you're alive. Twice as many moments of looking in the eyes of someone that's in front of you, of seeing the change of seasons, the light this time of year, because we're almost at the summer solstice and the golden you know, reflection on all these grasses. And you go, oh, I'm not just driving. This is the planet on fire with the light of the sun. And isn't it beautiful? So don't take even a little improvement to be not much, because it might be double your life. It's worth a lot. So we'll end with that. A couple of little tiny announcements and a chant. Um, Sharon Salzberg, who's a dear friend and wonderful teacher, is doing Friday, June 20th, an evening of loving-kindness in um, Palo Alto at the Ananda Church of Self-Realization. There's a There's a flyer in the back for that, and she's just great. She wrote a book this last couple of years on loving-kindness, the revolutionary art of happiness. There's also a Vipassana retreat for women coming up in July with Julie Wester and Deborah Chamberlain-Taylor to mention. And the um, third announcement is that the people who carpool from San Francisco or come from the city, please remember to carpool that place, the church near the corner of Funston and Anza, because some people go there and are waiting for others to carpool, and it's been forgotten sometimes. So that not only helps us at Spirit Rock, but it helps the ozone layer and the plants of the Bay Area and the traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge and so forth. So please um, uh, remember the carpooling. And thank you for your support, for the money you pay to be here or the offerings you make in the baskets as you leave for teachings or to help build Spirit Rock. All of it is really gratefully received. Thank you so much. It's so good to be back. So let us do a simple chant, the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. The one who is awake can honor all the things of life. And so we'll chant the word namo nine times. And as we do, you can imagine what you wish to bow to, the joys, the sorrows of your life to bow to those as well and to that capacity of holding them all in this wise heart of a Buddha. Na mo na
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.